0: The first scripture comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And I know that Pastor Keith, having heard his sermon earlier today, is going to flesh this out quite a bit. So I want you to just hear this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And the second scripture, though not secondary, comes from what many Christians call the day the church was born, Pentecost, when the revival was happening in Jerusalem, that the people were there found praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What, what wonderful scriptures and what a wonderful message for you to hear on the day that your church is also seeking to be transformed. The third thing I'm able to do today and called upon today is to pray for our congregation and your pastor, would you join with me? Well, Lord our God, on this morning we come together. And as, as we talked earlier, we knocked off the, the cold of outside when we entered this building. And it was warm for us in two ways. One, because uh, we're fortunate to live where we can afford heating uh, systems. But even more importantly, we felt the warmth of these people, of this congregation. We felt the, the presence of, of a place uh, that may not be physical because it moves with your very people which are the church and so for that we give you thanks for the warmth that you bring in our lives through the very church that you've created through the power of the Holy Spirit and we're grateful and thank you to be thankful to be a part of it because we're part of a church lord we have uh, happy hearts because so many great things are happening in the life of the church and in the lives of those uh, who are part of this church and also lord because we're part of the church we often have heavy hearts, and some of us are heavy this morning after realizing the, or hearing the news that Charlie Cress has passed before us and has now uh, entered the church triumphant. So we ask your, your blessing, your angels' rush to Pat and, and their family, uh, that as they walk these steps on the road of bereavement, that your healing presence might be near to them and that they might truly feel your arms of grace and mercy and love clutching them tightly to yourself. And Lord God, as we come as a congregation, we sing songs, we hear challenges, and we rest and revel and are blessed by your word. And so, as Pastor Keith comes this morning to preach, let him speak the words of guidance, wisdom, and strength that you've given him far before this moment to this, we, your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Mike. Good morning.
1: Look at that looks a little different than the one that we're going to build, doesn't it? Some people are going, yeah, that looks like a church. Let's talk about that for a minute. What does a church look like? Seriously, answer that question in your own mind. What does a church look like? It's a question that many of us wrestle with, especially churches that are getting ready to build new buildings. You know, because I guarantee you every building project in the history of Christian churches, someone along the line somewhere said, well, it's got to look like a church. But when pressed, it's a little bit tough to nail that down, isn't it? You want to know why it's tough to nail that down? Because a church isn't a building. It's tough to nail that down because if you look at really what the Scripture talks about the church, you recognize something that's kind of different than what our culture our experience tells us a church is. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're, to, we're beginning a, a six-week sermon series on the church not the little church with, like, you know, with little c, like a local church, but the large church, the church universal. And we, we talked about that, or we're talking about that, because as we move into our next phase of, of what the life of Marian Methodist looks like, we need to understand what we're a part of on a greater scale. And what exactly is the church? so I'm going to give just a very abbreviated, which I can do that by the way, talk on um, what is the church and where did it come from? Now this could be a graduate degree in that question, okay? you could spend years studying it, and'm going to give you, I'm going to give it to you in about an hour and a half. so um, just hang with me here. we're going to get through this, but the reason why we're talking about this is is because if we don't understand what the Bible talks about or what God means when He talks about the church, then we run the risk of becoming an entity unto ourselves and, and and launching ourselves into a direction that may or may not be what the Holy Spirit has for us. So we're going to talk about that this morning. So I want to begin by talking about what a church is. What is a church? What is the church? And first and foremost we see that a church is a people, not a building. And the scripture that, that Pastor Mike read from, from 1 Peter 2, nine discusses the fact that, that we are a people. This is what Peter discusses. He says, you're not, he doesn't say, you're an awesome building with great windows and this kind of architecture and that kind of layout. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, let's just hang there for a second. What does it mean that, that the church is a people rather than a building? Because let's face it, a lot of us think about church like it's the building. We say things like, I'm going to go to church, meaning here. Or we say it all the time. Hey, I'll be over at the church doing, doing something over here. And we go. And, and, and that's, that's, we, we know what we mean, but what does it look like when a church building no longer becomes a church? I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday whose whose daughter and son-in-law are going to open a bar-slash-restaurant in downtown Atlanta in a building that used to be a church. And some people are finding it scandalous, I'm sure, because what what do you do? That's a church. No, it's not. It used to be a building where the church met, but it's not a church. You understand where I'm going with this? The church is us. It's a people according to the scriptures. It's not... Four walls and a roof. The apostles uh, gathered together in the book of Acts in the temple courts... Okay, this is the place of worship in Jerusalem in the center of that. And it says that every day they got together to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. So then they went to their homes. They ate together. And it says God added daily to the number those who were being saved. These were the activities of the church. And they weren't confined to a specific location. They were wherever they were. Because the church was about the people. Kind of like your family isn't defined by your house. Your family are the members of your family, the human beings that are a part of it. That's your family. Your house is just where you happen to live. So what's really your home? Is it the four walls on the roof, or is it the people that you live in community with? It's the people. That's how the church should be understood. Secondly, the church, according to the Scriptures, is often called the Bride of Christ. Let's talk about this. The Bride of Christ... In the book of Ephesians, we see the Apostle Paul using this metaphor to discuss marriage and to discuss how this relates to his church. And he says it this way, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless, This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. And if you look further into the book of Revelation, you see multiple passages that talk about this prophetic vision of the church being presented to to God as a bride, the bride of Christ. You see over and over and over again throughout the scripture, even in the Old Testament, you see how, how God says that I am a bridegroom to you. And you will be my bride. You see this imagery all over the place. Jesus himself often refers to himself as the bridegroom. He talks about himself this way. In Revelation, we're called to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We know who the groom is. The bride is the church. Consequently, this is why marriage is such a big deal to Christians. Because marriage, according to the scriptures, is the picture between the husband and wife. That's the picture between Christ and the church. It's imaged from the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his church. That's why it matters. That's why it's important. And when you look at the way that the Apostle Paul talks about everything that that a husband is to do for his wife in terms of of loving her and giving himself up for her and protecting her, if you all those things are things that Jesus Christ has done for all of us, his church. It's an it's an amazing image if you think about it. Thirdly, the church is an institution. Now, some people are going, whoa, wait a second here. What do you mean by that? Now, Pastor Mike is going to have the joy of discussing this next week in great detail. But make no mistake, the church is not some individualistic idea that you might have or a belief in a God or even a belief in Jesus. You know, Jesus said, where two or more are gathered in my name, I am in the midst. But Jesus, if you look at the Scripture, okay, and that's what I want to talk about is the scripture and history. If you look at those things, Jesus set up a church. He founded a church. He set up leaders. He set up authority, and he set up a specific mission. The church is not just an idea or a feeling or something that is optional for Christians. If you look back, you see it. Now, I know a lot of people say, and you've probably heard them or maybe even said this before, but have you ever heard somebody say this? Well, I believe in God, but I've got a problem with organized religion. Right? That's a popular thing to say in our, in our culture. And, and if you look at the context, why people say that, there, there's various reasons for it. But what is the alternative? Are we to be disorganized? Is that what the Lord had for us? Is that the best expression of the Christian faith? Is the church just simply supposed to be a disorganized group of people that kind of do whatever they want, think whatever they want, believe whatever they want, act however they want, and, and, and understand however they want? That's the way a lot of people want it to be. But that's not the way that Jesus wanted it to be. You understand? Jesus didn't just give his teaching and say, well, whatever you guys think, however you want to interpret it, whatever you feel about it, whatever makes sense to you, however you want to do that, if that if you don't like that, then just throw that part of it away. If, if this is better for you, just go ahead and do that, and, and, and we'll all just live happily ever after and have a campfire or something. That's not how Jesus set things up. That's not what his apostles did. His apostles had authority, and they had a command and a mission to spread the gospel into the world. Did the apostles just go their own way and do their own thing? Obviously not. We looked at Acts chapter 2, where they gathered together with a specific mission. If you read the apostles, if you read the Acts of the apostles, or if you read the books of the New Testament, you see this institution. They functioned with leaders, structure, and authority. And much of the sentiment behind not wanting to be part of an organized religion is that people simply don't want any of those things. They want to be self-led with no structure, no accountability, no authority other than themselves and their own loose interpretations of the Bible that always happen to agree with whatever they think. Certainly not biblical or historical Christianity. Fourth, the church is the body of Christ. The body of Christ. We're going to talk about that. This is one of the Apostle Paul's favorite metaphors to talk about the church. and He says you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. In Ephesians, 1, in Ephesians 1, he writes these, these words, And God placed all things under his feet, meaning Christ, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean that the church is the body of Christ? It, it's, it takes us back to this idea of the incarnation, doesn't it? When God became incarnate in flesh, Jesus... And physically came to this world so that we might be saved. God became flesh. That's the incarnation, incarnate in the world. That's what this metaphor points us to, you see. God became incarnate in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. And Jesus continues to reveal himself to the world through his church. We are the incarnation of Christ. He lives within us to this world so that the world might know who he is. And we are a body. We are a body with many parts. We who are in Christ, though, we form one body. This metaphor teaches us that we're connected to each other, and yet our head is Christ. We all have different roles. None are any greater than the other. And they all work together. Just like you have many parts of your body, can you function without one of them? Not to the fullest extent. And as a church, we need to remember that, that we are his body. That's why it's so scandalous when churches cut off from one another and don't have fellowship with one another and refuse to to acknowledge each other. It's as if one, one hand says, hey, the thumb should go this way, but the other hand says, no, the thumb should go that way. And, and this hand's always talking about how the thumb pointing that way is way better than the thumb pointing this way, and, and we can't have thumbs that point the wrong way, so we need to, to cut off one of these thumbs and hands and separate ourselves so that we can have all the thumbs pointing in the right way. You see, that's the human tendency, to say whatever's not like me, whatever's different from me or, or, or varies from the way I think or see things should be cut off, you see. But recognize this, the thumb may not, this hand may not like this hand, but the head really needs them both. You see? The head needs them both. The head says, hey, there's a reason why I have a thumb going this way and a thumb going that way. Or whatever you might want to think about it. The fact is this, we are the body of Christ, and he is our head. The church is an institution, but it's not a lifeless institution. It's a living body. See, I think the problem that a lot of people have with institutions is they think, oh, when I think of an institution, I usually think of something old, decrepit, dying, and worthless and irrelevant to to my life and society. That's what I think of when I hear institution. I go, oh boy, that's lifeless. And God knows religious institutions can be the worst at that, right? Religious institutions can be the worst at that, They can take all the life of the Bible and of Jesus and, and completely push it aside for the sake of the institution. Oftentimes when things become too institutionalized, all that means is the life has drained from them. But yet the church is an institution and fully alive, fully relevant, fully powerful. That's what we need to think about. Oftentimes we want to go one way or the other. We either want some kind of rigid institution that is more about itself than the one who founded it, versus we want to throw out all the institution and everything that Jesus gave us that would help us stay organized and on mission. This metaphor of the body it's perfect because a body is contained. It operates according to rules and principles. It, it can't just separate itself at will because it's mad at someone. It holds together, but it goes where the head tells it to go. And it's alive. Now, that concludes the first part of my sermon on what is the church. Very abbreviated. And I'd like to close by talking about where did the church come from. It's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? Where did, where did the church come from? What did the first church committee minutes look like in history? Where was that meeting and what happened? I'm going to give you what I think it was. You can disagree if you want to. Everyone has the, uh, the uh, uh, um, prerogative to be wrong once in a while. Um, just kidding, of course. Matthew chapter 16, this is a familiar verse. You guys remember reading this verse or hear this verse? You've probably heard it or read it before. This is what I believe the first church committee meeting looked like. Now, I'm sure there's somebody else there that's going to go, actually, Pastor Keith, it was here, 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 here. Okay, you're right, I'm sure. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am, or the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is what I think qualifies as the first official church committee meeting. Okay? And here's what's going on. Jesus and his disciples, they go all the way up to Caesarea Philippi. Now, Pastor Mike's been to the Holy Land. Anybody else in here been to the Holy Land? A couple of you? Caesarea Philippi, I I haven't been there. Caesarea Philippi, which is not called that anymore, is, is far away from Jerusalem. About as far away from Jerusalem as you can get and still be in Israel. It's not near the center of the religious activity of the day when it comes to holy religious activities. This was a pagan place of worship. And at Caesarea Philippi was this large rock. And out of this rock was, was carved a cave. And in this cave were performed all of these pagan, demonic sacrifices to the pagan god of death called Pan. That was the pagan god of death, Pan. Okay? He was the god of other things, too. We'll talk about in a minute. But that was one of the things he was the the pagan god of, according to to this culture. Caesarea Philippi was only called Caesarea Philippi for a few years. It It was named that by Philip the Tetrarch, who was the son of Herod the Great, the king that we talked about last week, who wanted to to kill the, the baby Jesus. This is his son, Philip. He calls it Caesarea Philippi, to name it after Caesar Augustus. It's a pagan place of worship. It's not the kind of place you'd ever want to have church. It's not the kind of place that as a Jew you would even want to go to. And yet Jesus hauls his apostles all the way up there. It had to be a couple days' walk. And there they are standing at this place, at this rock of pagan worship, and he makes this statement. Now, why does Jesus do that? And why does Matthew bother to record that Jesus did that? Because this was important where they were. See, Jesus often used what was around him to, to, to co- communicate messages. He'd said, oh, it's like a field, or it's like a bread, or it's like a fish, or, or whatever. He, he often used what was around him. And, he, and as they're standing there at this pagan place of worship, He asks this question, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And then, of course, our good buddy Simon, and I'm going to call him Simon because that was his name at this point. Simon says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Simon declares who Jesus was. And then if you read the text, now you'd see that Jesus is going to declare who Simon is going to be. He tells him when he first meets him, you will be called Peter. But it doesn't actually all come together until this event. Now, what does Peter mean? In English, we lose what happens here, okay? But Jesus spoke Aramaic. And the Aramaic word for Peter is Kepha. It means rock. So Jesus says to Peter, after he makes this pronouncement of who Jesus is, he says, and I tell you, you are Kepha, and upon this Kepha, I will build my church. That's my English-Aramaic slamming together. This is the epic moment where Jesus begins to found his church. He says, you will be called Peter. And on this rock, which that's what the word Peter means, he changes his name. So what we see here at this pagan worship at a rock is Christ establishing his church on another rock. This rock being Peter. Now what does it mean that Peter is the rock? Ultimately, what it means is this. It means that he was the one to whom Jesus would give over his authority to, to lead, protect, and to teach the church. If you remember at the end of John's gospel, Jesus pulls Peter aside. The resurrected Jesus pulls Peter aside, and he says, Simon, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, feed my lambs. He says it three times to him, restoring him from his failure and giving him this mandate to feed his lambs. You know this God, Pan, that we talked about was the God of death, but Pan was also the God of sheep and shepherds. Now, who is the true good shepherd? Jesus, of course. Jesus, of course, was the good shepherd. And we stand at this place of pagan worship of false gods of shepherds and death to declare that Jesus is the new good shepherd. And we don't often understand all the significance of this because we don't know of this importance of where they were, but Matthew includes it so that we would know. Jesus is the chief shepherd, but he would leave his flock in the care of his under-shepherd, Peter, the rock on whom Jesus would build his church. And in here in Matthew 16, we see also that Jesus gives to Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does that mean? The keys are not what we're used to, right? Our keys today are small. We, have, we even have cars that are electronic keys. You don't even need to turn anything. That's what we're used to when we think of keys. Not so for these apostles. When, when, when Jesus said to Peter, I give you the keys to the kingdom, they knew exactly what keys to the kingdom looked like. Because every king had a kingdom, and every king, every kingdom had keys to get into the kingdom. And these keys were about three feet long because they had to be inserted into a large gate at a city and turned in the right way. They were heavy. They were, they were these monstrous things. And the king didn't carry his own keys. He had a steward. And the king's royal steward was the one to whom would run the kingdom when the king was away fighting war or doing whatever he was doing or when the king was dealing with other kings. And it was the royal steward's job to walk through the city with the keys to the kingdom and let anybody in or out that the king requested. And it was an authoritative position. Here we see that Jesus is giving these keys to Peter. He's making him his royal steward. Now when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, he told her that her son would be given the throne of David. Jesus was a king, amen? Not just a king, the king of kings. And the king of kings had a royal steward to whom he gave his authority and the keys to his kingdom. And his name was Peter. And this was the first church meeting. This is where the church came from when Jesus said to Peter, all right, I'm going to be heading out of here at some point in time, and you guys are in charge, and you, Peter, you're going to make sure this thing goes the way I want it to go. I'm giving you the keys because I'm going to go off and fight a war. This is where it began. Think about all the parables Jesus talked about. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who went on a journey, left his authority to his servants, his talents, his talents. My point is this. Jesus was creating a church here. He wasn't just giving some knowledge and and religious platitudes. He had a specific mission, and he had a plan to carry it out, and he was organized about it. He was creating structure, leaders, and a mission. And what is that mission? What is that mission? Think about that when you read this text that you've read a hundred times before. Matthew 28 where the risen Christ is ready to ascend, and he has his apostles gathered together, his leaders that he's about to send out, and he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Then he gives them that authority. He says, now, here's what I'm telling you to do. Go and do it. Make disciples. Do what you're supposed to do. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the mission of the church. If you want to throw out organized, instituted religion, you also throw out the mission of the church. And I would ask you this, if you throw out the church's authority, if you throw out the church's structure, if you throw out the church's identity and the church's mission, at what point in time have you stopped being a church? Think about that. Think about that. Jesus went the great lengths to stand in front of that demonic place of death and say, I am coming to do a new thing. And you're going to be a part of it. You're going to take what I've given you and you're going to give it to others. That's why we do what we do. That's why we work so hard to take that mission into this world because we see ourselves as connected to that moment there at Caesarea Philippi where Jesus handed those keys to Peter. We see ourselves in that place. And we don't want to just run off and do our own thing, do we? We want to follow Jesus. Because you know what Jesus said about his church? He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what he said about his church you know how many churches closed last year? More than you would believe. More than you would believe. The church in America many times seems to be dying. And I would say this. We need to take notice of that. Because in my view, if a church is dying at some point in the line, it didn't fail, it stopped being the church. Think about that. Because we have this promise from Jesus that as long as we are the church, nothing can stop us. Not because we're so great and we've got these great plans. Because guess what? Even though he hands the keys to Peter and the apostles. About five seconds later, he calls Peter the devil, by the way. Okay? But even though he hands off the keys to the apostles, he's still the one who said, I will build my church. He builds it through us. You understand? He builds it through us. He doesn't hand us the keys, and now it's our kingdom. He hands us the keys to his kingdom. Just like if I gave you the keys to my house and said, hey, I'm going to be gone. I want you to come over. You have the authority to come and go as you please in my house, and I'm entrusting you with it. And the well-being of my house is dependent upon what you do with it while I'm gone. But guess what? It's still my house. I'm still paying the bills still belongs to me, but you can enjoy every part of it as you come and go. My prayer this morning is that for, for, for those, not just that we have this new understanding and like some kind of history thing, but what I want you to think about is this, on a, on, a, on a larger level, like what we're doing here, but also on a personal level, ask yourself, am I truly part of Jesus Christ's church? Am I part of what he was doing? Or have I rejected, have I rejected His authority, because I want to do my own thing. You may belong to a local church building, congregation, but that's a different thing sometimes than belonging to the church of Jesus Christ. And it all begins with that same question that Peter was asked by Jesus. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that he is? That's your entrance into the church. Getting that right. Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God is wanting to reveal himself to you as he truly is. And when you believe that and declare it, you've become part of the church. And now you have a mission. Now we have a mission. And we're gonna do the best we can to be faithful to it. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and for what you call us to. God, as we step into the future as we step into what you've called us to become, we ask that you'd give us the supernatural power to be faithful, Lord, to hear your voice and to follow it. Help us understand, Lord, your church in a more powerful way that we can be part of it. In Jesus' name,
0: amen.